Engaging conversation on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Hi, this is Kevin Burke of Rachel's Vineyard. Welcome to Oceans of Mercy. Today's guest wants you to know that if you think men don't care about the issue of abortion and are not directly impacted by it, you are very wrong. Charles Warwich, Chuck, speaks from the experience of suffering a lifetime of pain, guilt, grief, and self-loathing as a result of childhood trauma and two personal abortion experiences. His story led him into a descent into hell, almost literally, and thankfully a miraculous story of healing. After a successful business career, Chuck is now being called by the Lord to full-time ministry in, in the church, helping men and women receive God's healing and grace after abortion. His passion is to bring men out of silence and suffering. There's much more to say, but we'll let Chuck's story uh, tell that for you. Chuck has been blessed by 28 years of marriage and two adopted children. Chuck, welcome to Oceans of Mercy. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for having me today. Chuck, I think it's important that we start with uh, learning a, a little bit more about uh, what I read you would share with me about your experience of childhood trauma, because I think there's often a strong connection to later experiences of abortion loss in the aftermath for women and for men. So could we start with uh, maybe just giving folks a, a little bit of understanding of your early years and what you were experiencing in your family? Yes. Um, well, first, I'm an adopted child. And Kevin said I adopted two children. And um, I was adopted by my, of course, my biological or my my mom and dad. Uh, they were a generation older, and I think it's important to understand when we talk about childhood trauma that, like abortion, childhood trauma involves many different things. My dad was a World War II veteran. He was a Fifth Army Ranger, one of the first people to land in Normandy on D-Day. He was a, he's a hero to me today. And uh, back then, it was a it was a tough childhood because uh, he was an alcoholic and had PTSD, and, and he was a gambler. And my mom was schizophrenic. And so, as I grew up, I grew up in a very, uh, very, very um, unpredictable and and verbally, I will say, uh, abusive um, environment. I knew my parents loved me, but the environment was was really unhealthy. There was a lot of arguing. Uh, I think when I was 10 years old, my, my mom and dad divorced. Uh, there was adultery. Uh, there was always gambling problems, addiction problems uh, in the household. Uh, so, you know, you that kind of set the... Oh, sorry, Kevin, go ahead. That's okay. It strikes me, Chuck, that you had, you know, two very deeply wounded people who were dealing with their own personal traumatic issues and, and mental health issues. And at the same time, trying to be parents, it sounds like a really, really difficult situation. When did you first have a sense that there was something wrong, that you're, either your dad was hurting or that your mom had a particular kind of illness? I was wondering as a kid when some of that realization hit you. Every night when I go to bed, and wow. it could be at the youngest, you know, when I started to realize um, you know, as I could start to understand, you know, probably about probably seven or eight that that there was a lot of yelling. And I remember just being scared every night. Um, my mom and dad would come in and check on me and I would be scared to death when they would check on me. And um, and then I would just lay there quiet and in bed and uh, just kind of hover around and try not to cause any problems. So I literally lived on eggshells for for years, um, you know, throughout this process. My mom and dad only knew each other for six weeks. 
And way back when, when they got married, um, before World War II, uh, I don't think my dad really planned to come back. And they met, they only were together for six weeks. And uh, he said, hey, you know, I'm not going to come back and join the benefits and married my mom, married my mom. And then he did come back and they were unable to have children. So my dad was 45 and my mom was 42 when they adopted me. All right. So you're, how did that impact you moving into, uh, well, first, when did they divorce? What age were you? I was about 10, 11 years old, I think 10 to 10 years old when they divorced. And it was pretty interesting because they would literally live together, drive in the same car to the divorce proceedings, <clears throat> fight it out in the divorce, get back in the same car and drive home, <laughs> fight it out at night. Um, I've never heard that before from many stories, but uh, that's what they did. And I think my dad actually probably moved out of the house for a week or two. And I, I could tell that they were staying together I mean, I can look back and say they were staying together for me. They really were. They were doing everything they could to be the best parents that they could possibly be. It's it's really commendable. I hear you speaking with love for them, which is, I'm, I'm sure, a fruit of your own healing, which we'll, we're going to get to. Um, at the same time, Chuck, it sounds like, you know, you mentioned your father's, God bless him, his, his PTSD. Uh, it sounds like to me, uh, you were in a battle zone yourself. Very, very much so. Um, there was a lot of physical fighting between the two. Um, my parents, right after the divorce, um, my dad was unable to work. So my mom actually bought a tavern. Yeah, she bought a bar. And uh, once once she bought that bar, we moved in uh, right next door. And by the time I was probably, we moved in probably around, I was 11 and a half, 12 years old. Uh, by the time I was 15 years old, I think I probably had seen everything that a child shouldn't see you know, in the parking lots and other other areas of the bar, you know, inappropriate behavior, as well as my dad got immersed further into the alcoholism and gambling. My mother had to take care of the bar. You know, back then, um, I think it turned from being a lot of battle zone situation into neglect. Their focus went to the bar. And as I grew up to be a teenager, you know, I was pretty much on my own going to school and um, kind of raised myself that way. And uh, I really noticed it, though, Kevin, to answer your question, when, as I got older and would go over to other individuals' homes and I would see a loving mother and father or you know, they would invite me over for Thanksgiving or Christmas, you know, we owned a bar. So there was it was open all the time and people would come in and, you know, Thanksgiving dinner would be my mom would cook and serve it to all our customers. Well, that was great, but it was never a time where we would sit down at the table with us together yeah. and be a family, the three of us. Uh, I was only child. So when I would go to other, other people's homes, I'd start to sit down and I'd look at their mom and dad and they'd be getting along, working together, holding hands, maybe hugging each other. And I really felt odd. I was like, I'd never seen that before. And um, so that, that, that was very, very interesting. And that's where I noticed it the most. Yeah. You know, without their own, it strikes me that without their own personal healing of some kind in their lives, they weren't able to handle the intensity of a real family and kind of look, kind of look yeah. for that. You kind of recreated that in a sense with the bar and all, but obviously a very dysfunctional way to do that, especially for you as a as a young man. Um, you're you're so you're a teenager, mm -hmm. and uh, you know you're going from the experience of you know, PTSD of growing up in such a situation. Did you have it? Were there any experiences of physical abuse in addition to the neglected emotional abuse? Not that you needed more trauma. No. <laughs> <laughs> No, there was no physical abuse for me. Um, thank goodness. It was more mental abuse throughout the process. Watching and mostly directed between each other and less at me. But there would be times I did have a couple situations with a teenager 
where I knew my mom was unhealthy. I knew she was trying her best to, to earn a living with this tavern. She was working 18 hours a day, you know, and, and a little bit, Kevin, they're going to sound like a hero to you for me, because as I've grown older and gone through stuff myself and raised my own family, I look back and go, wow, given what they came into the relationship with and were dealing with, what they did was amazing. And um, well, thinking about your mom, she must have been an amazing woman because dealing with schizophrenia, which is really such a profound and often um, incapacitating, you know, so for her to be able to manage a bar, she must have been a very bright woman. She was extremely bright, extremely smart, worked the books, made it, you know, everything come together behind the scenes. My dad was like the party animal that was. Uh, out front and, you know, hanging with all, everybody in the bar. And my mom would be do, hanging with people in the bar, but she be, she had a work ethic like no other. Mm. And I picked that up because as a kid, I had to work before I went to school. I went to school early to help set up for gym materials and everything that we're due for classes. I was being mentored by a teacher at that time. He knew I was going through some tough times and he kind of brought me under his wing. He was fantastic. And, uh, but, but it taught me a work ethic like you read about. And that's where I got my work ethic. And I got my personality more from my dad as I watched him work with people and do things. And, and together, right. somehow they, they, they made it work. It was a little bit insane. But they well, made yeah. it, work. it was very much insane. But at the same time, I, it's, it's awesome because you do recognize you were able to take some strengths from them and that work ethic, I'm sure, is the reason I'm talking to you today, that, that you have that. Um, where did, um, as you began to see other families and that there is a different way to do it, and I would imagine that when you had your first romantic relationship of some kind, that must have been very powerful for you, given what the deprivation you experienced emotionally. Yeah, you know, um, I learned early on uh, from watching the relationships at the tavern and all the inappropriate stuff I saw there. And then as kids looking at the, all the magazines and everything you get into and all that stuff that I, I, as I got my first girlfriend, I was 15 years old. She was 14 years old. And I remember probably we were together for a year and a half. And I remember probably about six to eight months of it was very pure kind of love, if you will, or you're very young, of course, but then it turned physical. And once the physical started, that's where I started to connect that love is sex and sex is love. And when I connected that together, that became very powerful to me. And it was, it was the way that my, it would set the foundation for my relationships moving forward and all throughout high school and even into parts of college. Yeah. So you didn't have that opportunity of, you know, maturing and in a relationship, you know, with another person, I mean, you had the powerful, uh, the powerful hormones are raging at that age. So uh, it is interesting that, and I think this is not uncommon sometimes is those initial experience. And that's one of the problems with our, our society's message about sex, because you have those very powerful experiences of sexual intimacy, and you can confuse them with the sacrificial covenant love that, you know, we really are called to provide to those who, uh, we are entr who entrust their love to us and, and the children that might come of that. So you had those, you had that initial uh, experience. And when did you first, uh, when was your first abortion loss that you would, you would experience? Yeah, the first abortion loss was when I was a, a junior in high school and I had a girlfriend and a different girlfriend at this time. <clears throat> and my way of having relationships was <clears throat> get close quickly, have sex with me first, and then we'll have a relationship later because mm -hmm. I did believe sex was love. And that's the way that, that you, you, and I also, I, I thrive that intimacy and that is such a powerful, mm -hmm. powerful uh, feeling that as a child, you just can't control it. 
But mm-hmm. and then you you get that support, like you said, Kevin, by all the media and everything, especially at that time that was coming out. Um, you know, I really thought that this was the way that it was supposed to be. This was, a, you know, this was being a man. And um, of course, I know today that wasn't. Um, so my first abortion experience was with her. And I'll, I'll never forget this. Um, we were having inappropriate relationships and relationship. And um, she came, we were in the car together and, and, and I'm an adopted child and she was an adopted child. And, you know, we both were adopted and we thought that was cool. We're dating each other and we had something in common. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember she told me she was pregnant and I was 16. She was probably 15 at the time. And I just remember, you know, looking at her and she and she asked me, what do you want to do? What should we do? And I said, well, and I remember saying this clearly. I said, I'd love to have this baby, but I have no resources. I mean, we're in high school. I don't know what to do. And then she said she had a friend that she had spoken to that um, she could go ahead and have the abortion. And it would cost like, <clears throat> I don't know if it was 75 to $100 back then, back in the day. Um, and that if I gave her the money, she would go ahead and spend the, spend the night over at her friend's uh, house and that her friend would drive her to and from. And that's how it all went down. So I had about a week to uh, collect the money before she was going to go that following weekend over to her friend's house. And I remember during that week, I had a lot of uh, second thoughts. I really didn't want to do this. Um, and, but I just didn't know where to turn. I knew if I went to my parents, this would be totally dysfunctional. And I thought, Oh boy, her mom and dad will kill her. And then, um, I will tell you that, um, just being in high school and, you know, that whole process of your friends and everything else, it was a kind of that social pressure. You know, one thing I do say about abortion and, and I've learned this as we'll talk throughout, throughout our time together is that it's never just abortion. It's always mixed in with a lot of other factors. And, you know, as I do my coaching and mentoring and participating in Rachel's Vineyard leading those programs, um, I hear so many stories that are heartbreaking to me, you know, of people. And I feel so much for them because I remember when she told me that how I felt. And and I actually felt, Kevin, for a little while when she called me and she said she had it done. I felt a little sense of relief for us for a very short period of time. I don't, I don't think that's uncommon, particularly for a young, for a teenager or a young adult who is in that crisis mode and just wants this problem to go away. I think it's not uncommon to have, actually it's kind of confusing because of one, I hear from other men, I'm interested in what you say, Chuck, but for a lot of men, there is that sense of relief. There's even a sense of a job well done. Like I resolved that crisis. There's a distorted sense of I was the man. I, I kind of manned up. I helped pay for it. We did the right thing. I have no regrets. And you can feel like that for a really long time, maybe even go to your grave thinking that, unfortunately, um, tragically. But um, I'm wondering if you had kind of, and I was also thinking, Chuck, that did you ever have a sense that uh, given you were both adopted, that you know the abortion and this pregnancy situation, did that ever cross your mind as well as you were processing it? Absolutely, Kevin. Yeah. You know, that's that's a great question because um, I wanted nothing more than half this child. I knew deep down that I wanted to, but you know, for all those, <clears throat> for all the reasons I mentioned before, um, there's just, I didn't have a way to, to get to that point. Yeah. And, um, and I'll add an and to what you were saying before is that um, I, I do believe that, that, in to today's world, there are more resources that are available with pregnancy centers. Back then, where your girlfriend goes to get her pregnancy test was Planned Parenthood. 
or to a doctor. You couldn't get it over the counter. <clears throat> so she had to work with a friend to go get it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Right. So she was already a abortion minded, so to speak, mm -hmm. when she sat down with me. Now, she respected me enough in this case to say, hey, what do you think? And, you know, in the process, but that path in her mind was already laid out as well. Yeah. In many cases, you know, men can't stop that from happening. In my case, I could have and I didn't. I paid for it. And um, being an adoption really hurt. What I thought was solving a problem, uh, I would say in my time period, lasted that long because what followed it was pretty tragic. Okay. Let's, before we get to that, I just want to just comment on um, what you said about pregnancy resource centers, how important they are, particularly you think of a couple like, like you guys back then and your situation, your family, you needed somebody. I mean, when you're in a crisis, it's tunnel vision. You just want to stop the pain, stop the anxiety, lower the stress, resolve the situation. That's all you can see. You need somebody to pull you back and say, whoa, let me just let's take a step back and let's look at some other possibilities. What are your what are your concerns? What are your biggest fears? And let the you know, obviously, let the young people talk about that. People who do this and counsel are really, uh, really have expertise in that area. And they're able to help a couple step back and see that abortion as well as childbirth is really is absolutely a life changing experience. Both are life changing experience, but this is where one will lead to. Here's where the other then they really have choice, if you want to say that. So then you were about to uh, share with us when the uh, after effects of, of, of participating in the death of your child, you began to experience some negative feelings or, or experiences around it. Could you share with us a little about that, Chuck? Sure. And I think you summarized it perfect, Kevin, the death of my child. That's how I felt. No matter how much I tried to shrug it off, the problem and solution was done. I did not expect afterwards to feel like this was going to be the death of my child. And um, I had a situation where her mother actually found out and uh, she had gone to her friends. She brought home the paperwork, uh, left it in a drawer. Her mom <clears throat> found it and read it. <clears throat> so I had literally called her wanting to go out that following weekend. I wanted to talk about it. I did, you know, I was feeling a ton of anxiety and I was crying. I, you know, I kind of hit a wall. I, I felt like I had just caught, I murdered somebody. And I mean, no are offense. You, are, are, please excuse me for interrupting Chuck, but you, I just want to be clear. You were aware at that age that, that, that you would have participated in the child's death. Like, it sounds like you were really. I was very aware. I'm an adopted child. I think a lot of young people for a while aren't are protected by a sense of denial about that. You were not. That, yeah, that I was, was I was not, I was adopted. We had, my girlfriend and I had talked about the adoption option. Um, there was a girl that was pregnant in our school and she actually came to me cause she knew she was adopted and, and I talked her out of abortion. She had the baby. I mean, here I am, right? I am doing wow. all these things. And next thing you know, I murdered my child. And I don't mean to offend anybody that's listening about using that term murder, but that's, that's how I looked at it. After the abortion before I was like, hey, I'm solving a problem. <clears throat> we'll get through this. We'll work through it. And then her mother found out, <clears throat> excuse me, I remember making uh, the call to her house and I could tell she was on and I could tell that somebody was listening. And, you know, she told me, listen, um, my mom found out and my mom has asked me never to speak to you again. And if you do speak to me again, she's going to tell 
my father and my father will absolutely destroy you kind of thing, that kind of talk. And, you know, I was already traumatized. I was already crying. I mean, you know how you remember being in high school, how sometimes tough it is to lose a girlfriend. Oh, you know? yeah. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine losing a child and then wanting to get with your girlfriend to talk about it and then all of a sudden being cut off instantly? And then knowing that you now had harmed a family, I really felt this, Kevin. Well, this on top of your, on top of the grief of being very connected to the fact that you had a loss, you lost a child. You weren't, yes. you were, you were not able to, to be protected from that for even a time, which is really brutal. And then you, know, but you also had your own experience of, and I've used this term before on this, this program, you were emotionally aborted in your own family. You know, God bless your parents through no, you know, through their own pain and trauma. But you, your rejection and your own experience—what a complicated experience emotionally for you to have all that going on. It I'm was, sure. you know, and I'm and, surprised and, I'm still talking to you right now. Well, I tell you what happened. It's interesting. Um, and at this time, I was had been already confirmed as Catholic, but I was not going back to church. I th thought that, you know, God hated me, which is anything but the truth. Uh, but it's where my mindset was. At yeah, that's how you felt, right? Yeah, I did. I was like, I portrayed God so many times and now I've done the big one, you know, and, you know, I was probably at this time, 16 years old, so now probably at this time, maybe 17 years old. And um, <clears throat> I was old enough to know right from wrong and where I was coming from. But what I had happened in an evening was I had a blackout. I can't explain it. I was laying in bed and I fell asleep. And all of a sudden I envisioned myself over this big, black, empty space. And Kevin, I knew it was hell. I could see it was hell. I knew it was hell. It was empty. And as I was being hung over this, looking down into it, it had no sense of time, no sense of beingness, no, no respect for who I was or anything. And I felt like I was going to be dropped into this thing and my existence would cease, would end and, and any memory of me would cease to exist. It was a strange, strange situation. Wow. And <clears throat> what I didn't what I didn't realize was I was extremely traumatized, traumatized from going up the way I was. But at that point, that trauma hit me so much that I think I just reset. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but I felt like God had lifted me over hell. And from there on, I couldn't feel. And I went for years without being able to feel. I couldn't feel joy. I couldn't feel sorrow. Um, I was numb. I was numb inside. And, you know, and, and that was that was my PTSD starting point, I think. And I'm also OCD, which I've kind of grown up with, but never knew at the time. And with these thoughts that were going on in my mind, it did lead to one suicide attempt. Um, and uh, I'm sorry to hear that. Chuck. Yeah. And, you know, but you, but you learn. Right. And and so by the time I got done with high school, I had um, tried. I couldn't talk to her. I had no way of getting closure to anything that she was thinking. I would see her in school, but not be able to speak to her. Everybody knew we kind of broke up. And, you know, it was like one of those things where I had to walk with a smile on my face. And then other people would approach me, want to go out with me, or my friends would want to hang out. And I just started to withdraw from everybody. I was a football star. Uh, my junior year, I had amazing success. And my senior year, I couldn't even play. I, I just lost my, my self-esteem, my motivation, my drive, my work ethic. Um, I was just kind of existing as a being going through day to day to day. How did, I'm so sorry that you were experiencing such a, such a really communicate a level of that vision that you had, you really were immersed in that in some ways, not fortunately you didn't 
it didn't lead you into the abyss with no way out. God's grace was there for you, of course. But um, I can really feel and hear the uh, the pain you were suffering, and that it was so so acutely painful that you uh, maybe and this maybe this was for a time God's grace is that you were numbed, hmm. so that you could kind of you know continue to to move on with your life. So when when did you did you come out of that numbness at some point? Uh, what, what no, you, I, you know, Kevin, I went into college still numb. Um, I could start to feel a bit more as time went on and I changed my environment a little bit. But changing your environment really doesn't work <laughs> there. Wherever you go, there you are. Right. And uh, so I went into college lacking self-esteem um, and uh, I met a girl my junior year and fell deeply, deeply, deeply in love. And this time I changed the paradigm of the relationship. I tried anyway. I realized that I was, she was a wonderful Catholic girl. She's beautiful. She was everything that I wanted to be, had a beautiful family. And I just didn't know how to be a, a I don't want to say good guy, because I, I, I wasn't trying to hurt anybody. I was a good guy, but I didn't know how to be. I, I just, you know, I come out of this situation and I couldn't tell her about it. How do you sit down and explain that to somebody? Yeah, and uh, lo and behold, uh, you know, we dated for, I thought we were going to get married. We dated for a couple of years, uh, junior year and, and, and into senior year, and she got pregnant. Mm. Okay. So what, you had another pregnancy decision. Were you, what, what are you thinking at this point? You've had, you've had, you've been traumatized by that first abortion experience. I'll, I'll say to our viewers, uh, if you're kind of new to the whole issue of abortion healing and uh, how abortion impacts people, you, you would might be surprised to know that uh, at least half of all abortion procedures are repeat procedures. Uh, my wife, Teresa, writes about that in Forbidden Grief. If you don't have an opportunity to find healing, emotional, spiritual healing of that first abortion loss, it sets up dynamics in, that oftentimes lead you to be looking at that same problem again and, and to be vulnerable to making the same choice or decision, I should say. Uh, so, Chuck, tell us what happened with that with that pregnancy situation. Well, in this situation, um, we were in her in her apartment and she had roommates and uh, the roommates left and she sat down with me and she told me she was pregnant. And I'll never forget this because I, my heart leaped. Uh, it just I could feel the feel a sense of joy. And and then she stopped and she looked at me and I said, I just looked at her. and I said, that is amazing news. And I said, I just want you to know that I love you. I'm here for you. We were already kind of acting like we were going to get married. We were meeting families, talking to each other. <clears throat> and I said, I will support you 110%. I want you to know that I'll be the best husband, the best father. And you know what? I'll make your dreams come true. I'll drop out of school now if I have to. This was in our senior, as we were going into our senior year. <clears throat> um, I said, I'll, I'll drop out of school now if we have to. And I'll go work. I'll make sure that I provide for this child. I'll, I'll do everything I can because I had come from the first abortion experience and I did not want to go through that experience again. And um, I really also thought that that she she was committed to me in a way that she would also be happy at this point. But um, the conversation quickly shifted to uh, her telling me in no uncertain terms that she's not having this baby. And um, and it took her about probably not even 20 seconds to say, I'm not having this child. You're responsible and you're going to pay for the abortion. If you don't pay for the abortion, I'm going to go ahead and get my roommates to pay for it. And, you know, and after they're done dealing with you, um, you know, that's it. 
And I, I was shocked at that point um, because um, I was, I, I, first of all, could not believe that this person who was so wonderful, very Catholic Christian would, would do this. Looking back, what I didn't realize again, what she had already gone to Planned Parenthood for the diagnosis or the whatever for the for for the birth test. She was already in an abortion mindset. She gave me the talk track through. I tried to negotiate there on the spot and say, well, think about this. I'm adopted. You know, we can adopt this child out. We can save the child, you know, and I probably spent a good 30 to 40 minutes with her. No, what what you shared was was beautiful and powerful, and with, you know, a lot of women would love to hear that response from a man. A lot of women wouldn't have abortions if they heard that response. But you, again, you bring up a really important point, and this is such an encouragement to our to our pro life listeners, those on the front line, those working in pregnancy resource centers. God bless you, because her when she went to Planned Parenthood, what are they doing? They're going to sell. They're going <clears> to <throat> sell their product. What? Yep. What is their most profitable profitable product? Abortion. So they sell it, and we know this from other abortion stories. So it it just impresses upon us. And we're gonna. Uh, I'm actually gonna uh, close up this particular episode because we're gonna need another episode of Oceans of Mercy to continue to unpack this powerful story from from Chuck. But um, uh, Chuck, can you hang in there? We're gonna do another episode. So I'm going to tell our, our, our listeners and viewers, uh, part two of this, of Chuck's story, will be uh, following next Tuesday, and you're, you're going to be able to hear how uh, he dealt with the second traumatic abortion, and how God touched his life, and how God led him to healing. So we've heard a lot of pain. I guarantee, I want to just assure you in the next episode, we're going to be seeing a lot of God's grace and mercy and healing, and also... You're hearing a lot about him. Jesus. <laughs> Praise him. And we're going to hear a lot about this uh, very special vocation that uh, he has now and expertise, really, in reaching out to other men. So thanks so much for being with us. If you or anyone you know has experienced abortion loss, you can go to abortionforgiveness.com. You're going to see that scrolled across the bottom. And you could put your zip code in and you'll see Rachel's Vineyard retreats, but you also see other healing retreats, and ministries in your area. God bless you, friends. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.